All right, so as we continue our discussion on our statement of faith, specifically the doctrine of the church, I'm happy to go back if there's anything from the front side of the page with the church and baptism and the Lord's Supper. Any further thoughts on those things that you all would like to discuss before we go to the back side of the page? This is what we already have. This is what we already have. Yeah. And some of the things we were highlighting last week, specifically with the church, were things... Basically, that first paragraph sets it out pretty well. We might tweak the wording a little bit, but something like that would be in the, uh, the basic statement and probably need something in there as well about the mission of the church. And uh, so the way that I understand this would be baptism and the Lord's Supper... The Lord's Day, missions, finances, all that is sort of under this big heading of the church. And so we would want to probably draw, at least of the ones that are essential, at least one of those uh, under it. But if you look at the church, observing the ordinance of Christ, I'd probably say ordinances, plural, because that would bring in baptism and the Lord's Supper. And then in terms of uh, the assembling, and I'm not sure that it says... Probably need something in there about assembling, because that would draw on the idea of the Lord's Day. And then missions is, what is the true mission of the church? And so we could uh, combine something with that in the first paragraph, and that would pretty well sum up all of these. Uh, do you have a follow-up to that? or? Okay. Sure, yep. All right, so that we are all on the same page, go ahead and flip it over. And uh, the top one that's headed, the Lord's Day. Let me read through the paragraph, and then we can talk through it a bit. All right. We believe that the first day of the week is the Lord's Day, and is to be kept sacred to religious purposes by abstaining from all needless labor and recreation, by the devout observance of all the means of grace, both private and public, and by a preparation for the rest that remaineth for the people of God. So, why do we assemble on the first day of the week? If you look there, um, I can just read it for you. Acts chapter 20 and verse 7 says, On the first day of the week when we were gathered to break bread. Uh, So that sets out a, a kind of pattern that the early church had. Um, someone then connect that back to Genesis 2 and verse 3. God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. Yep. So here's the tension. Um, and then probably another one would be... Um, The passage in Hebrews 10 about rest for God's people is another one. We'll turn to that, or I can read that for you in just a moment. First uh, Corinthians 16, I think I mentioned this when we were talking about the idea of giving. Paul said on the first day of every week, everyone put aside and save. It doesn't necessarily say that it means that they were assembling on that day, but that, I think, is a pretty reasonable implication of that passage. Uh, Hebrews 10 24 to 25, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
The idea about rest that remains for the people of God is actually in Hebrews 4, which I don't is not on this paragraph. So Hebrews 4. Let me just read that for you quickly, and we'll sort of look at all these things to sort of set the backdrop for what we need to discuss. Therefore, let us fear if, while a promise remains of entering his rest, any one of you may seem to have come short of it. That goes back to chapter 3 and talks about the Israelites who didn't believe. They didn't enter God's rest. They died in the wilderness. So that's what that therefore points back to. For indeed, we have also had good news preached to us, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith and those who heard. So God said, go into the land, I'll give it to you. They said, we won't. And God said, you're going to die in the wilderness. The author of Hebrews is making a similar argument. If we've had good news preached and we reject it, judgment will fall on us as well. Because verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest, just as he said, I sw- as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest, although his works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he has said somewhere concerning the seventh day, and God rested on the seventh day from all his works. And again in this passage, they shall not enter my rest. Therefore, since it remains for some to enter it, and those who formerly had good news preached them failed to enter because of disobedience, he again fixes a certain day today, saying, Through David, after so long a time, just has been said before, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered his rest has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. Therefore, let us be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. So that would be Hebrews 4, 1 through 11, and technically it goes back also to 3, 12 through 19. That's the most extensive discussion of the idea of Sabbath rest um, in the New Testament. Uh, We also have, uh, in Colossians, let me read that for us. Colossians 2, 16 to 17. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or inspect through a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things which are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And then, of course, you're familiar with Exodus 20 and verse 8 and the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So we put all these things together, and I probably could have arranged the order a little bit better, but here's the question. Is the Sabbath day for today? And if not, what was the significance of the Sabbath? And what's the significance of it in light of Hebrews 4 and Hebrews 10? And how does that deal with how we understand this paragraph? So those are some of the things that we need to talk through. Any initial thoughts on that? Sandra? Sure. 
Yeah. All right, anything else? I think the idea behind it is good, but I don't think it's practice. I don't think it's taught. I don't think it's held to. So I think if we're not holding people to that, we need to remove that portion. Um, again, I think ideally it would be great if we all dedicated the entire day to the Lord and meditating on Him and doing all that stuff. But I, I don't think it's I don't think it's what is being done. I don't think it's what has been taught to be done. So I don't feel comfortable having it in there if we're not actually doing it. Okay. Well, I would say yes, but we'd have to get the whole church on board. Yeah. So let's talk through it, because I think it's helpful to look at this historically, because it helps us understand where both where we're at, where this is at, and where the Bible was at, which at the end of, of looking at this is where we need to get. So, Sabbath, so this was for the Jews. Um, they had a Sabbath, which was the seventh day. Um, and the, probably the strongest argument is that this was laid out as a creation kind of a pattern, at least in principle. The seventh day, they were not supposed to work. For example, they weren't supposed to gather manna. 
There's a whole bunch of other things they weren't supposed to do. Um, there is this tie-in with creation, which I think is significant, that I think we need to, to deal with. We could say the Jews in Jesus' day, uh, Sabbath equals an excuse. Remember Jesus going after them and saying, if a guy falls into the ditch with his ox, or his ox falls into the ditch, won't you help him? Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath day, and they're ready to tear him limb from limb. He says, guys, the principle of resting doesn't take precedent or priority over meeting someone's need when they're in trouble. That's not why God gave it. He said the, what is it? Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, I think was the way that he phrased it. And so it had gone from this to being this. In other words, just like they said, uh, so the, the spirit of the law was children, honor and obey your parents. The Pharisees had gotten to the point where somebody could basically say, sorry, I can't help you guys out now that you're old because I've dedicated everything to God. So God's more important than you, so sorry. And Jesus said, what kind of an attitude is that? That has nothing to do with the original intent of what this was supposed to be. Same thing when somebody was, I think the disciples were gathering heads of grain on the Sabbath, and they said, that's a terrible, awful thing to do. Should they be doing that? Again, Jesus said, you're not understanding the point of it. So, what then is the point of it? I think the point of it, you come to what you see in Hebrews chapter 4, and Hebrews 4 sort of is an exposition, if you will, of what it says in Genesis, which is essentially God rested on the seventh day from all his works. We too will rest from all our works. And so this day of rest was a picture of that future heavenly rest, not a thing in itself to be worshipped. So what about the intervening period? The early church... Um, met in the evening. Why do I say that? Because Paul preached until midnight. He didn't preach all day long, contrary to some who would argue for all-day sermons. He preached starting late at night when everyone would have been done from work. Eutychus fell out the window because it was late at night. He was probably tired from his day's work. And that's just when they met. So they would have met in the evening. Why would they have met in the evening? Because some of them were slaves. Slaves didn't get the day off on Sunday. It wasn't a Roman a day off. It wasn't actually a day off in a lot of places until some form of Christianity spread across the known world. So, they would have met in the evening. They generally met on the first day of the week. Why? What gave them the right to say, we're not meeting on the seventh day, we're meeting on the first day? Or what was it that they were commemorating? Obviously, they're commemorating Christ's resurrection, which occurred on the first day of the week. So, here's an interesting question that I don't I'm sure somebody's probably explored it. I haven't studied it out in detail. Did the first Jewish Christians do both? Saturday and Sunday. The Sabbath and the Lord's Day. Well, they're putting aside the law. Okay. And Jesus basically said, I fulfilled the Sabbath. Okay. That's an important point. We'll come back to that. Think about Paul, though. Not, not this Paul, the one in the Bible. Um, Paul shaves his head in connection with a vow when he comes back to Jerusalem in an attempt to calm down the Jews so he has an opportunity to give the gospel to them. So there was not a complete stepping away from everything connected with the Jewish faith, but in Acts 15, which we'll get to eventually, 
There was also a recognition that it was not a mandate for salvation or for right standing in the church to observe all those sorts of things. So here's what I think was happening, and I need to do further study on it, and uh, I'm, I'm glad to hear other things that you guys have read too. I think that for a time period, they were still meeting in the synagogue and or in the temple on the Sabbath day. They were also meeting on the Lord's day. When it comes to the Gentile churches, that's changing, and that meeting on the Sabbath day is no longer happening for the reason that Bob brought up, which is that Christ fulfilled the law. What command do we not see repeated in the New Testament of the Ten Commandments? It, right. So, here's what's significant in light of what it says in Colossians. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day, things that are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. That follows right after what he says in See to it no one keeps you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you are also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, and the removal of the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you are also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. Therefore, no one is to act as your judge. Now, when we put those things together, we have something that happened right here, and it's this. So, the reason that I point that out is, there is a kind of misunderstanding, well-intentioned, not anything bad in the desire of it, that ignores this to try to bring this here. And I think that we have to be very careful of that because that was the issue in the early church. Do the Gentiles have to be circumcised in order to be right with God? What does that passage say? No. Because what happens at the moment of salvation is a circumcision made without hands such that there is not a mandate for the physical sign because A, we're not Israel, and B, because Christ fulfilled the law, and C, because the spiritual reality has come so we don't need the symbol anymore. So here's the tension. Has the, the ultimate thing that the Sabbath day is pointing to, has it been accomplished? No. So I think that we should have a concept of the Sabbath rest connected with following God. But I don't think that we have good precedent to equate, as the Puritans did, the Sabbath with Sunday or the first day of the week because of we're not Jews, because of the cross, because of the practice of the early church, all those things taken together. So here's the pushback that almost immediately comes to people's mind. If there's not a day of the week set aside as holy, separate to God, then we'll just do whatever we want all day long during the week. And my contention would be that what God calls us to is not one day a week, but seven. 
like when we were looking at giving. The Israelites gave somewhere between 10 and 23%. We come to the New Testament and God says, all of it's mine. So are we doing a disservice to God by coming here and saying, we don't have one day set aside for the week? No, as long as we recognize that the entirety of the week is God's. It's not mine, it's God's. I'm a steward of it just like I'm a steward of everything else in my life. And so that's where I think the corrective is to the idea that says, well, if we abandon this, then we've abandoned everything that's significant about it. And connected with that, I think that we see this principle of, of Jesus clarifying things. It's not just this, but this is what God was after. You know, any thoughts on that? Sandra. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. I'm saying it, for the Jews it was one day, yes. I'm arguing that, yes, uh, in terms of... Uh, so here's the question. Are there holy days? So like uh, one of our songs we sing at Christmas, um, this holy tide of Christmas, all others doth efface, deface... I started to have a discussion about that with Kelly, and she's like, just enjoy the song. We don't need to argue about the word. I'm like, it bothers me, because I've heard it said both ways. But is Christmas a holy tide, a holy time, a holy day? Not in a salvific sense, not in an impartation of grace sense. So are there any holy days today? I would say no, and connecting that with Colossians 2. So, generally speaking, there are no holy days Follow up with your further question, because I see that that's... You have more questions on that? To who? Who did God say that to, is my point. The Jews. Does he ever say that in the New Testament to the church? No. It doesn't apply to us in the same way, but I think when I say in the same way, uh, it doesn't apply to us as a command that we have to follow. But like a lot of the other things in the Old Testament, if we just say, okay, uh, we don't have to worry about any of that because it was all for the Jews. I mean, I don't, I'm not saying we take two-thirds of the Bible, throw it away, say we just do the New Testament, which is not what you're saying or that anyone would necessarily say, but I feel like that's sometimes the way we act. If, and, and I'll, I'll just be honest, sometimes churches, seminaries, people with a connection to dispensationalism undervalue the Old Testament because we say, oh, that was for the Jews, we don't have to do anything about it today. I think that that's a wrong understanding of how the Bible should be used or, or helped or, or its function to help us. Because what did Paul say in Romans and in 1 Corinthians? It was written for our instruction, so through patience and understanding of the Scriptures, you might have hope. These things were written for our example, so we wouldn't sin the same way they did. So there's a lot of valuable lessons in the Old Testament, and I think that includes what we can learn from the law. Bob? So if we just start over today, yes. what, do you, what would you say would be the, the ideal, the best scenario for organized gathering? <laughs> I think that there's nothing wrong with following the pattern of the early church. 
I think that we bridge a difficult gap because typically changing up our service schedule has been associated in our day with people saying, church is an afterthought to the week, I'll fit it in wherever it's convenient. And that's obviously, I think, not a right perspective on it. That being said, sometimes we'll come to the other extreme, and it'll be like, if you don't have six services a week, you don't love Jesus. And I don't think that we can argue that either, based on what I'm talking about right here. So, if there was, let's just, let's just throw out some scenarios. Let's say that there was a church who said that everyone in our church works on Sunday because of everyone in the church works for the same corporation, and that's just their work schedule, but everyone is off on Saturday. Would it be sinful for them to meet on Saturday? I don't think we could say it would be sinful for them to meet on Saturday. The one pushback I would say is, you need to clarify why you're doing it so that you don't confuse people about all of this. What about if we had an evening service instead of a Sunday morning service? I'd say that was probably the practice of the early church. What if we had only a Sunday morning service? Again, I don't think it's about the number of times that we meet a week. I don't think that it's about... It's primarily about the specific days that we meet. What's the command in Hebrews 10? Which I thought was really interesting that this was one of the passages here. Um, because this whole paragraph seems to be arguing for the Lord's Day to be kept sacred. But Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 doesn't say which day it says you must assemble. So that's the correction to the attitude of some people, which is, I don't need to come to church, I can watch a, a message on TV or listen to it on the radio. And I don't think that that's wrong. I, I mean, here's my tension. There, there was older people that I was ministering to who were in assisted living and who couldn't get out. And it was far better for them to get a good message on the radio or on TV than it was for them to not get anything if they weren't able to come to church. But the, the caveat being that it was a good message, because there's a lot of bad messages out there, and with an understanding that it's not equivalent to coming to church. Um, and this ties into the ordinances, and we'll talk about it a little bit in the morning service, but I don't think we can properly practice the ordinances by ourselves or with a group of a couple of people that's not organized into a church. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, I mean, I know there's those portable communion kits that you can buy from Christian bookstores and stuff, but I think that that's missing the whole point of what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a gathered, public commemoration of what Jesus did that's not really feasible when you have a group of two people or one family or whatever like that. Uh, is it sinful for that group not to practice those things? No. Should they move toward a point where they can? Yes. I mean, there's a lot of things, and, and I won't go too far into that. But So if we had to start over and say, what would be the proper practice today? Um, I think that we see in the early days of the church, there's probably a decent argument to be made for the idea that they were gathering several times a week, possibly daily. Granted, that would have been in the context of they wouldn't have had a whole day set aside necessarily for it, so they would have had maybe a service on Sunday, and then they would have had other gatherings during the week. How many days of the week, we don't know. Would everyone have come to every one of those? Probably not. Um, uh, was it large meetings in buildings? Well, certainly there was the gathering in the synagogue regularly, uh, but then there was also the from house to house. Um, 
So if I had to say, what should the church be doing today? If we didn't have a building, if we were just a church, what would the, what would the core things be? We have to gather. We have to carry out Matthew 28, 18-20, which is to disciple people. We have to give attention to the apostles' doctrine, I think, following the example of the early church. Uh, there needs to be prayer. There needs to be fellowship. There needs to be breaking of bread. All those things, the church gathered together, then going out to do God's work in the world. Does that necessarily mean the typical service schedule? Does that necessarily mean meeting in a building? No, because there's churches that don't meet in buildings uh, or don't meet in their own buildings, and they still are doing what a church is supposed to do. Does it mean the same service schedule? No, there's churches that don't have a Sunday evening service and still are following God. There's also churches that don't have one and have gone off into doing whatever they want to do in the name of following God, and that's a different sort of a thing. So all those things together, what, bringing it back home, what does this have to do with our statement of faith and what should be in our statement of faith? I think that we should have some kind of a statement that says that if we go back to our paragraph on the church, I think that if we had to add one word to our paragraph on the church, it would be this word of assembling and Hebrews 10. Because I think that's the mandate. I think that's where a lot of people fall down in their understanding of the church, both in terms of commitment, in terms of their need for fellow believers, and in terms of them actually doing what God wants them to do. They, they get focused on... Um, they get focused on following various rituals, whatever those might be, and then saying, well, I can watch these rituals on TV. I can sing songs along with them. I can whatever else. I can send money to a group. So I don't have to actually be in a church building. That's where I think this idea of gathering, of assembly, of being together with other Christians, I think that that is the critical thing from this paragraph on the Lord's Day. But I would be totally fine. I think it might not, I mean, it probably would be a wise idea for us to put in some of these passages like Acts 20, verse 7, Colossians 2. Um, I think John was the same kind of thing. It was on the first day of the week they went and saw, um, let's see. On the first, yeah, that's when they, were, they went and found Jesus' empty tomb. So, I think that that would certainly be worth expanding in a more extensive explanation of why do we meet on the first day of week and not on the Sabbath? Lay out all these passages. Why do we gather? I, I guess I would probably put it here. I think, oops, i get my one that writes. I think if we're thinking about our levels, I think this is what we're looking at here. I think the idea of gathering is central to what it means to follow Jesus. Can you go to heaven if you don't go to church? Yes, but is it so closely associated with what is essential about the church that I think it's pretty nearly at that top level? Yes. What day of the week do we gather? I think that that would be what our church does versus theoretically what a church might do 
and that would distinguish our church from other churches that might meet on a different day of the week. And granted, a lot of the ones that do meet on a different day of the week have a whole bunch of other issues, and so that's also important. And some of those are salvation issues, and some of them aren't. The third level, which I don't think should be in the statement of faith at all, but just as practice, is what time are our services? What, what days are they? Some of those things. Bob? So, we talked about this a little bit in the preliminary process. Would you say that meeting twice on Sunday, meeting on Wednesday night, is at least at this time the best practice because that's what our society is used to and that's what overall seems to work. And so then would you say that um, obviously changing can create some conflict. Um, but would you say that it, it makes sense to at least offer um, like we do with the Brothers at Arms or like um, the Women's Study to at least offer additional gatherings, um, fellowship at your house, fellowship at another member's house, to try to do that on a fairly regular basis for the times when somebody can't come on a Wednesday, they can't come on a Sunday for whatever reason, so there's still that opportunity to fellowship, to pray, to gather, to yeah. If I remember right, the discussion that we had, you and Mike and I, and the answer I gave was along the lines of, if we're going to get rid of a service, I think we need to ask ourselves, what are we doing in that service, and what are we going to do instead of it, even if it's at a different time, that would be helpful. So, uh, Sunday night, a lot of churches got rid of Sunday night and went to small groups, which I don't think is wrong, but given the size of our congregation, do we need small groups, you know? Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with the subset of the congregation gathering for some kind of assembly. Um, the young families got together and did kind of an unofficial thing a few weeks back, and that was good and that was fun. I want to do something for uh, all of us to at least consider participating in. I want to do a, a board game night thing, probably like New Year's Eve, something like that, and have an opportunity for people to gather and, and, and come together, whether that's here or somewhere else. I think that would be a great thing to do. Um, in terms of more formal, like, instruction type of times, I think Bible studies are great. And so, again, I think, uh, or along your same, same point, there's a difference between me standing up and preaching to you, having this sort of a discussion, and the sort of conversations we have in a less formal setting. And I think all of those are good. The biblical mandate for any of them. I think there's a biblical mandate for the public reading of Scripture, for giving attention to the Apostles' doctrine. And so churches that say, we're not going to have any preaching services, we're just going to have sort of a share what God's laid on your heart service, I have a little bit of attention with that. But at the same time, if we go all the way over here and we're like, preaching accomplishes anything and everything the church is supposed to do, I think we missed the point of some of the gatherings that were happening in the early church. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of those things where I don't think... Mo I, and coming back to, 
should we keep doing our current service schedule? My answer would be, I don't see any immediate need to change it as long as we all understand that there's not a biblical mandate that we have to do it that particular way. So for example, one of the things that we have to decide is when are we going to go Christmas caroling? In my mind, one of the times that we could go Christmas caroling would theoretically be on Sunday evening. And maybe some people would have an issue with that, I don't know. But I don't see that that would be a problem per se in light of what I've laid out for you here. Um, if we say we're not going to do a service a particular time of the week because of, so like this last week for Thanksgiving, we didn't do a Wednesday night service. And the bottom line of that is a practical one. Because if, if most of you are not going to show up, it doesn't make sense for me to come here. And for like two of us to be gathered, it makes more sense for us to all gather collectively. Same thing with, in a few weeks, different churches will have Christmas concerts. And if we, if we together say, hey, we would be interested in attending some of those Christmas concerts, and our church is not in a position to do a full-length Christmas concert, I don't think that it's wrong, and we have to be so like, if we don't do it, we shouldn't participate in it, that to say, you guys can't go to somewhere else where they're doing... Uh, some kind of concert at Christmas or some sort of, uh, I know Inner City does a patriotic service, or not patriotic, it used to be a patriotic service. They do a uh, uh, fireworks kind of thing in the summer. So if there was another church, you know, particularly a like-minded church in the area that was doing a fireworks kind of outreach and we said, hey, we want to sort of throw in and help them with that. Again, I don't think that, I don't think that that would be bad either. And so, um, I'll just stop there. So, does, any, does everyone understand where we're coming with this? Does that make sense? Are there any... Go ahead, Sandra, you had a question or thought? I mean, I, I agree with you, and I guess my, my desire has been, particularly once we get through this first phase of Maggie's treatment, to try to get back to seeing what ways I can creatively connect with different ones of you, whether that's, you know, going and seeing what Evan does at, in his Bible study at Oakland University, or, you know, whatever else, just to see where you guys are at, have a better understanding for the challenges that you face, what you have going on, and those sorts of things. And that would be more for the guys, obviously, than for the ladies. But I, I see your point that, so here's the tension. Uh, so many times in churches, we say, people need to grow in whatever. And we say, okay, let's start a class. Classes are not bad, but classes are not the same thing as Paul spending several years traveling around with Timothy and, and teaching him what it means to pastor people, you know. And I'm not saying it would be pastoring per se, but just like, what does discipleship look like? It, it involves a whole lot more than once a week kind of a thing or, or whatever. So um, so here's, 
I think we'll pick up missions and finances next week, but let me just give you a quick preview to think about for next week. And that is, um, is there a difference between planting churches, securing clean water, offering medical care, meeting the needs of the poor, all of those things, they fall under the label of missions, which ones do, which ones don't. Then with regard to finances, the thing that I would urge you to think about over the next week, in light of some of the things we walked through a moment or so back, is scriptural giving one of the fundamentals of the faith at the same level as the virtue, or even at the same level of we are Baptists? That's another thing for you to think about. So, all right, we'll wrap that up for today right now. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to look at these truths together. We pray that you would help us long for the rest that you have promised. We pray that you would help us to live out faithfully uh, the truth of your word in light of what we have in Christ, that we are not under the bondage of the law, that struggling to keep we would find only burden and inability, but rather we have the freedom that Christ has fulfilled the law and so we follow in his example and seek to keep the law of Christ and, and live in a way that's pleasing to you, recognizing that although what you laid out of the Israelites was certainly what you required of them, that ultimately your goal was not merely that they would say, I've checked off this box, I'm good in God's sight, but rather that they would see, as hopefully we see more clearly each day, that all of the moments, all of the resources, all of the breaths of our lives belong to you. We just pray that you would help us to be wise as we uh, use them and pray this in Christ's name. Amen.